Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution and learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Welcome back to another episode of Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom Land, a zoologist and professional researcher. And I'm Rebecca White. I'm a PhD student in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. And today we have quite a cool episode, a current topical episode for you. Yes, we love it when evolution stuff is in the news, don't we? Yes, it's great. And yes, we have a story which is not only up to date, but, well... It was it was scientific news, and now I think it's more akin to scientific gossip. Still exciting. It's still very exciting. Yeah. It was exciting, bit pressing, but yeah, exciting for a whole night. <laughs> we were exciting for an entire twelve hours. Uh, this episode today is about the Tasmanian tiger. Yes, over the past couple of weeks, the thylacine, also known as the Tasmanian tiger, has been hitting the headlines. But this animal has been extinct for about 80 years, so why is it in the news now? I think the first question to go through is what is a thylacine or Tasmanian tiger? It is a dog-sized, was a long, a long dog uh, with a short, stiff tail, large head, pointy ears, and its Latin name, Thylacinus cyanocephalus, basically just means a pouched dog with a wolf's head. It's neither a dog nor a wolf, though. Yes, it's part of the marsupial group of mammals, but we'll get onto all of that in just a second. It's a about for appearance's sake, uh, for your imagination, 180 centimetres long, 58 centimetres high, and about 30 kilograms soft brown fur, kind of 11 to 20 browny black stripes down the lower half of its back. So kind of like a greyhound in proportions? A greyhound in proportion with weirdly Ish. proportioned legs and a longer yeah. face, and also stripes on it. It's got quite short forelimbs than expected, quite well-built, uh, with elongated back legs, much shorter foot than expected with a mammal of its size. Hardly make any vocalisations at all. Kind of a coughing bark noise when anxious or excited, um, which is quite sweet. When hunting, they would kind of give terrier yaps to each other, which I think is quite, quite sweet. Uh, they are very, very shy. Can't say how shy they are compared to the loud and somewhat more feisty relatives, which are the Tasmanian devils. <laughs> Love them. The screaming, tiny... Yeah, they're, they're great. Uh, but, yeah, they can live to about five to seven years. A few live to about nine years in captivity. And just just to say a little bit more about their behaviour, because I, I, they're a group of animals which we don't know a huge amount about and we have to rely on diaries and previous excerpts to actually just get any information about them. So half the day they probably spent in a den or a cave, they're kind of semi-nocturnal, but they do bask in the sun as well in the evenings with, I mean this is the level of detail that we know it to, but with an upward pointing ear when when they're lying in the sun. L literally we know the distinct behaviour of what they did when they were sunbathing and yet it wasn't enough to save them. It, it really is, is sad but incredible. And in ca captivity they used to kind of locate shade whenever they could. 
So yeah, they've been recorded to jump at least eight foot high when they were in enclosures. And unusually for a cat-like, dog-like mammal, because they do look like those, it uses its entire foot for walking. Now, the foot of a quadruped like this, on, on its hind legs, its heel is the backwards-facing knee bit of its of its back leg. So they have cats and dogs actually have quite long feet. They can walk around on their, their toes. toes. They kind of would have had a, a loping walk to them, which is kind of quite endearing, <laughs> if not a little clumsy. But when they're surprised and wanting to travel quickly, they used to hop bipedally on their back legs for a short period of time. Kind of relatives to the other marsupials living in Australia, kangaroos and wallabies. Famous. Yeah, and they would have hunted preys for preys. They would have hunted prey by endurance. I just kept kept going, kept chasing it until the prey fell over from exhaustion. And they were really choosy. They they only ate what they killed. They didn't scavenge. The skull, in fact, also reveals huge amounts about their biology. They probably hunted via smell, considering that they have an enlarged sinus cavity. They had a huge amount of nerves behind their nose. And considering that they were at the top of the food web, they had nothing hunting them. They kept populations of herbivores down into sustainable limits, including the wallaby, which has now since exploded in their populations. But yeah, it, it had a really stable place in the Tasmanian and also Australian uh, ecological system. But the main question is, why are they currently in the news? So a team in Tasmania thought they had rediscovered not just one, but a family of thylacines. And if this was so, it would change them from being extinct to critically endangered. Which would be mental! And we're going to tell you whether they were right or not at the end. They have to wait and see for that one. <laughs> so there's been controversy about whether the thylacine is truly extinct or not. Uh, since the 1930s, people have mm. been, been saying they're not. They are round and round. Um, some say they might just be really rare and good at hiding, especially as a lot of Tasmania is uninhabited by humans. These some people spend a lot of money and a lot of time, a huge commitment, in setting out to find them especially through camera traps and exploration for clues like poop. And it was the camera traps that they think they had seen these thylacines on, and that's why they are in the headlines. But the tale of the Tasmanian tiger is a great one, both in its evolution all the way up until when it was last seen in the 1930s. So we want to dedicate a whole episode to them, and I'm going to start right at the beginning with marsupial evolution. And then I will get onto the story of the thylacine itself in modern history and the downfall of a species that was taken long before its time. marsupial evolution and expansion. Marsupials are a group of mammals. Mammals are split into three infraclasses. Uh, first we've got the placentals. These are the ones, the kind of typical ones we know and love, like primates, like humans, um, canids, felines, etc. Um, and these are defined by the fact that the fetus is carried in the uterus of its mother to quite a late stage of its development. And then you've got the monotremes, which are the egg-laying mammals like a platypus, normally the ones that are left out, but they are there too, they're a type of mammal, and then the marsupials, which we're going to focus on today. So the marsupials are defined by the fact they have a pouch, or a marsupium, and these are kangaroos, opossums, Tasmanian devils, and of course the thylacine and many, many others. 
So all marsupials are mammals, but not all mammals are marsupials. It's a toad frog problem again. Exactly. <laughs> all toads are frogs, not all frogs are toads. Yes, that's episode six and seven <laughs> right there. So today there are over 330 species of marsupials across the Americas and Australasia, and they are only found on these continents, not found anywhere else. But the naming convention of marsupial animals is kind of dumb. They're named after the placentals that they look like, but they only look like those placental mammals because of convergent evolution. They're not actually that closely related to them. Um, for example, the Tasmanian tiger is not a tiger. Thank you for naming it that. Um, other examples, marsupial anteater and Tasmanian wolf. Not an anteater, not a wolf. They're actually more closely related to each other and all other marsupials than they are to anteaters and wolves in yeah. the placental group. It's because they're doing... A, a niche in an environment needs to be filled. Something needs to eat ants. Something is, is adapting to be... Well, have wolf-like appearance and behaviour and to hunt things in the best body shape for that is that like a wolf and the best teeth are fangs and so it will uh, a species will adapt to fill that niche and it'll end up looking pretty similar to something which isn't at all related to it yeah and even if they've come from completely different lineages and we've talked about convergent evolution multiple times we're only on episode nine and it keeps coming up this is just another example of that additionally marsupials tend to be outcompeted by placentals as well and Becca, you actually did it as well when you were talking about placentals, the typical mammal. It's, yeah, it's, it's what you think of when you think is, of a mammal. It is, absolutely is. And it's kind of going back to a Victorian kind of classification of marsupials being second to <laughs> everything else. It's the fact that placentals tended to predate on them more. They tended to be the ones that everyone compared marsupials to. They were the ultimate mammal. Uh, interesting you should say that. I'm going to come back to that point later Ooh, on. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> so while everyone was um, naming marsupials really annoying names, um, <laughs> Charles Darwin actually got it. He saw them, he saw marsupials and said, on seeing the marsupials in Australia for the first time and comparing them to the placental mammals, an unbeliever might exclaim, surely two distinct creators must have been at work. So he's saying... It's almost like if you believe in God, the two different gods must have created marsupials and mammals because they're so interestingly distinct. Convergent evolution. Exactly. Convergent evolution. <laughs> but in reality, placentals and marsupials diverged over 100 million years ago. That is ooh, 40 million years before the dinosaurs died out, just for a timeline of things. Cool. Yeah. Didn't know that. Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> I didn't think of it in that way. Um, and each of these groups rapidly expanded through adaptive radiation to give the species we see today. Both groups were really, really quite successful. The exact date of when placentals and marsupials diverged from each other is actually quite uncertain. 100 million years last Tuesday. Ish. Exact date. <laughs> Sorted. You're welcome. Is that what you're claiming? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, I had to dig through the research for this episode. Okay, and I um, <laughs> the, the more modern the paper, the results just kept coming back with earlier and earlier results. So it went from 190 million years ago, 247, 224. And with the current consensus being more recent than 135 million years ago. <laughs> that is a cop-out. It's like... <laughs> That's yeah, where we're at. These ish. things are really hard to work out, but our most up-to-date research from a range of different types of evidence and a lot of different sources shows that it's roughly 130 million years ago. How does that compare to the dinosaurs? Uh, uh, 60 million years before they went extinct. Ah, fantastic. So that's when they diverged. But where did they diverge? Where did the first marsupial or proto-marsupials appear? 
and we're quite a bit more clear on this. So marsupials first appeared slash split from centaurs on the southern supercontinent Gondwana. Tom, what's a supercontinent? A, a big continent. <laughs> yes, it's made up of the continents we have today, so they were more connected. Heck yeah. That was a panic response. <laughs> and Gondwana was in the Southern Hemisphere. It was made up from the Americas, Antarctica, and parts of Australasia that were all one big landmass. And by 64 million years ago, marsupials in the South American region were already diverse. And they had expanded into many, many niches and allowed adaptive radiation to flourish all across Gondwana. So we got some really, really remarkable marsupials adapting to all different kinds of niches all across the land. But then the complete breakup of the supercontinent. Of course that happened because now we have South America, Antarctica and Australia not connected. So just prior to this, fossil evidence suggests that marsupials spread from South America all the way along Antarctica to Australia which was all connected and ice-free until 35 million years ago. So they went on a bit of a journey. They evolved into marsupials in South America and then made their way across to Australia. And then following geographic isolation, so the, the oceans forming, this allowed further divergence into the two groups we see today, the marsupials in Australia and the marsupials in the Americas. So now we have marsupials split up on different continents and each continent has their own story. And here I'm going to follow the Australian story because this is what brings us to the thylacine. Otherwise it's going to get real messy real fast. I definitely want to come back to the America's marsupials in America story at a later date, but for now, thylacine. So marsupials are common in Australia today and placentals are not present. So marsupials, you know, you know a kangaroo comes from Australia, right? Yes. I'd say everyone knows that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident as a zoologist. And a Tasmanian devil. That, yeah, they are all from the Australian, Australasian region. Yep. Yes, and placentals are, are typically not present unless you include, like, dingoes, which arrive quite late, or humans. Introduced. Yeah. And, uh, rats, cats. <laughs> exactly. But they didn't, they didn't evolve there. Um, so when marsupials migrated across Antarctica to reach Australia, fossil evidence has actually found that placentals came along too but they're not there anymore. And that means that marsupials actually outcompeted the placentals that were on Australia, which is the opposite to what you said earlier about Victorians... Assuming that placentals outcompeted marsupials. Yeah, so placentals are not necessarily the, the better group, <laughs> the more successful group of mammals, because in yeah. this context, the marsupials actually won. They outcompeted the placentals. For the record, I don't think placentals are better than marsupials, <laughs> but in regard, that is a Victorian standing point. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting. Very much so. And it was one fossil, one fossil of a tooth that um, allowed us to, to find that out. So now you've got the marsupials cut off on Australia, which is a big landmass connected to Tasmania. And over the following time periods, the environment and the climate changed a lot, which means the animals had to change too. So from the late Miocene onwards, from about 5.5 million years ago-ish, Changes in global climate caused the Australian environment to turn really dry and that resulted in savannah woodlands and grasslands. Quite nice, right? quite a nice image. But then after that, the Pleistocene, which was from about 2.58 million to 12,000 years ago, was accompanied by the arrival of humans. Yay! And as you can tell, everything was fine and there was a happy <laughs> ending. Oh, oh wait. It was a, a typical story really, overhunting, landscape burning, everything they need, the humans needed 
to survive. Um, that's associated with megafaunal extinctions. Many marsupials died. Many of them went extinct. And these human impacts also led to huge alterations in the ecosystem vegetation. So by doing a lot of hunting, they actually killed a huge number of herbivores. Um, so animals that only eat plants. Um, and this meant a lot of plant types, especially sclerophylls, which are a group of plants, just could grow wildly out of control because nothing was eating them. Not only that, you've unbalanced the rest of the food web above that as well, so all of the massive carnivores at the time also had nothing to eat and would have also died out. So, yeah, great great job, early humans. Great job. Yeah, so this sclerophyll plant group almost totally replaced the rainforest environment and all the lovely woodlands that we were imagining earlier because of humans they were all gone yay and this resulted in an overall decrease in marsupial diversity but interestingly it did favor radiation in some groups so grazing marsupials like kangaroos they found they loved it they found a new niche <laughs> and went wild kangaroos absolutely loved it as long as well as some other big herbivorous marsupials and then more humans, the arrival of European humans, brought invasive species to Australia like cats and rats, which further threatened the marsupial populations. And population declines are still observed today, such as the endangerment of the Wyoli, the Tasmanian devil and the lead beater's possum. And uh, yeah, Beck, you were talking a moment ago about a period in the Pleistocene, which is often referred to as the Australian megafauna kind of time, which was a boom in diversity of marsupials in this Australian Pleistocene region about 2.5 million years ago, where things over 100 kilos to sometimes 1,000 kilos suddenly developed, went wild and, <laughs> uh, and evolved. Some of these clades are, of course, older than the Pleistocene going back into the late Miocene over 5 million years ago, but... This this was the region which they're most associated with. And you've got kangaroos turning up, you've got big wombats turning up, you've got emu, emus, cassowaries, the thylacine turns up around five million years ago Ooh. as well. And also, with megafauna, we tend to think of really big things. You've got something called the diprotodon, which is the largest marsupial ever to have existed to our knowledge. Imagine a wombat, now imagine a three-ton wombat, and you're kind of along the... The right lines. I've seen pictures of these. People have drawn them based on um, skeletons. And the fossil record as well. Yes. Yeah, it's probably 1.6 to about 1.6 million years ago to 44,000 years ago. Extinct at the hands of man, we are assuming, as well as climate change. But it was herbivorous, three metres long, two metres tall <laughs> and 3,000 kilograms. The origin, rather interestingly, this this huge wombat wandering around the Australian bush may have been the start of Aboriginal folktales about the bunyip, which was a beast that swam around in swamps eating things, <laughs> including people, which wasn't so much what the diprotodon did. But this is the start of quite a lot of folklore, a, kind of a devil character. And reminds me, we need to do kind of a science to folklore story because this is a very real animal and a very real tribe, the Wemba Wemba tribe of Southeast Australia, that have still got stories today about, possibly, about the diprotodon. So I think an episode from uh, science, science to folklore would be really, really interesting. What about summer solstice for that one? Absolutely. 
And of course, uh, along with this Diprotodon, you had a whole host of other Diprotodon tids, variations on the giant koala, wombat kind of deal, which works so well wandering around <laughs> eucalyptus forests. Some being grass eaters, all adapting to different niches in this Australian landscape, and they were massive. And it's a really interesting and fascinating clade, which I don't think I know nearly enough about. Um, most of the megafauna went extinct from humans introducing placental animals, overhunting and converting habitat and climate change. It is the same, the same story. Which is, again, that, that's the kind of a background to the region in which the thylacine was evolving uh, and developing in. Must have been a pretty remarkable sight. I would have... It, there are some truly wacky stuff going <laughs> on in Australia in the Pleistocene. But yeah, back to the Tasmanian tiger. Becca, what else can you tell me about it? So the Tasmanian tiger group, the Thylacinidae, diverged from the other marsupials around 26 million years ago. So that was about 9 million years after Australia stopped being connected to Antarctica and the Americas. Early thylacine fossils indicate that thylacine morphology, so I guess kind of a proto-thylacine... The shape. Yeah, the right shape, was fully established by 20 million years ago. Whereas the thylacine species we're talking about, Cynocephalus, turned up about five-ish million years ago. So approximately 14,000 years ago. And I appreciate this episode has a lot of years in it, but we're getting closer and closer to the present. So 14,000 years ago, the island of Tasmania formed. It became separated from the mainland Australia by rising sea levels. And these sea levels continued to rise until the early 20th century. So the Tasmanian tiger was now isolated on the island. At this time, it was probably also quite broadly distributed across Australia, but then it became extinct there on the mainland around 3,000 years ago, leaving it only on Tasmania. And what do you know, we have the Tasmanian tiger on Tasmania and nowhere else. As the, as the modern animal that we know and love today. Absolutely. My part of this episode is going to leave you with the Tasmanian tiger on Tasmania, absolutely loving life. Apart from its, you know, slightly dwindling genetic diversity. Where's that, Tom? Well, now we get from discovery to extinction. So I'm going to talk about the discovery of the Tasmanian tiger by Western civilizations to its extinction. Because as we already know, a lot of the Aborigine societies already knew of its existence far, far before any Western ship turned up on Tasmanian shores. There are many Aboriginal stories around the Tasmanian tiger and they existed on mainland Australia to about 2,200 years ago-ish. And a lot, a lot of cave paintings still survive of them uh, on, on the mainland of Australia. From the introduction of the dingo, a placental mammal that hunted them and also competed for their prey, they, it did outcompete and make them extinct on mainland Australia. So, as you say, we've got Tasmanian tigers on Tasmania. And in 1803, we're going to have a bit of a history lesson. Oh, great, you had timelines now. We've got very specific <laughs> dates. But it is an all all up to the the lead up to quite a sad story of, of the extinction of this animal. So, 1803, Tasmania then known as Van Diemen's Land, became part of New South Wales colony and the Europeans turned up and started to build there. 
It was known since 1642, but no one had actually bothered to ask the locals what it's what this island's name actually was. So that they gave it a new one. And just for a little bit of background, Van Diemen was actually governor of the East Dutch East India Company around the time, around the 1600s, that he sent a guy named Abel Tasman to go and find new lands. Uh, now we actually attribute the name to Abel Tasman because Van Diemen killed killed all of the locals. Oh no. All of all of the locals. It was a 30-year extermination genocide campaign. But that is a story for another time and probably a history podcast, but it's important to I feel it's very important to know the historical context in which this story takes place because it has a lot of people making very stupid decisions as well as a natural uh, history and evolutionary context as well. So, with the thylacine very much holding out on its last refuge of Tasmania, widespread in eucalyptus forests, ferny wetlands and grassy plains, uh, then the sheep turned up. The sheep? The sheep. In 1824, the first sheep were introduced to Tasmania. And sheep are really tempting prey. Hang on, you sound like you're blaming the sheep for what you're. you're no, about what to I'm blaming. Well, that's what the people at the time were thinking. That the sheep are obviously tempting prey. The Tasmanian tiger, a ferocious beast, has eaten all of our sheep. You can't blame the sheep. Well, that's what they did. What turns out actually was happening was, and, and is now thought to have happened, the Aborigine tribes at the time were killing the livestock as a guerrilla warfare tactic against the perpetrators of a genocide. Deep. Then the next year, 1825, Tasmania becomes its own colony, which means it now has its own laws and rules separate from any nation. There is no centralised control of this country, which could perhaps limit development. So now the Europeans on the islands went wild. Five years later, in 1830, Van Diemen's Land Company issue the first bounty on the thylacine's no. head. They're seen as the killers of sheep. They're not. They're seen as the killers of people. Also not. There is not a single record of attack on a person. And a bounty is being put out on their heads. 25 years later, we see the end of the genocide it's seen as a war from 1803 to 1830s, 1840s where the Europeans were systematically exterminating all of the locals. And it saw the name change to Tasmania because Van Diemen again associated with the war. This was a point in time when European expansion flourished on this island. There were no more locals to compete with territory or killing any livestock. Full European colonisation really set in. Fast forwarding 30, 30 more years, we're now in 1888. A new price appeared on a thylacine's head as they're still seen to be killing livestock. They're not, but it's a £1 reward for every thylacine killed and handed in. How much is that in today's money? About £70, which didn't seem a lot now, but that's five days' wages for a skilled tradesman at the time. Say, you could, in theory, live on that. It's not much by any means, but it was seen as about five days wages for a single skilled tradesman. This was big bucks, one pound for one thylacine, half the amount if you get a young one. 
And over the period of time from 1888 to 1908, over that 20-year period, 2,200 individuals were killed and bounties wow. collected, which is huge amounts for a small island like Tasmania. Mm. Not a huge population would have been living there. And not everyone would have collected a bounty, so expect... Pro- I'm, I'm, I'm doubling it. I'm saying at least 4,000 were probably mm. killed in this period of time. Two years later, 1910, they were considered rare. Ten years later, very rare. Only a few individuals are being seen. And in 1932, 120 years since Europeans first landed on this island, the last individual was shot in the wild. And that was it? In the wild, that was it. In 1933, the last remaining individual was caught and sold to Hobart Zoo in New Zealand. Three years after that, in 1936, it was added to the protected wildlife listings list. A bit bit late by that point. Extremely. Later that year, on the 7th of September, 1936, the last known individual of the Tasmanian tiger died at Hobart Zoo. The species was later declared extinct. This is an extremely sad tale for its humans being... The way they treated it, it's yeah it's it's the, incredible the, that the people the local people the local wildlife the animals everything was just it's a colonial machine awful. destroyed a huge amount of Terrific. the environment and destroyed a species which up until that point was thriving on those on tasmania they just arrived in tasmania and caused devastation but there are no photos of them in the wild only captive and hunted individual photos remain these pictures are available online of what we, we think was the last animal in captivity. Uh, you can see them. There's even a few little videos. I believe there is a very short video clip of it wandering around its up and down. concrete enclosure. Actually, interestingly, some people think that that individual was walking up and down because there was a spaniel on the other side. And it was interacting with the spaniel. But we're not 100% sure. It, what we do know is it had a very, very sad few years of its life in a very yeah. small concrete cage. Um, there is, I'm really sorry there's no happy ending to, to that tale. But yeah, there's no records of them attacking humans. They avoided humans as much as possible. And that was the end. Until. 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 Well, or was it? <laughs> so... Now, to the sightings in the recent news. Over the last 60 years, there have been a substantial number of reports and sightings of the thylacine, literally in the hundreds. Numbers have been dropping since the 2000s, but <laughs> in the last 10 years, I believe, come when it was in the early 2010s, a pair, a pair of people, a couple, <laughs> were hiking and they are 100% sure they saw one walking across the road Ooh. a few feet in front of them. Which is interesting, but I'm going along the lines of it's potentially there's no evidence. So bias, and there's no evidence, and there's a lot of people going. I saw one, and then and then there's no photo. And in a day and age when we have very good cameras constantly on us in the forms of phones, what was it you said to me the other day? Extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. Exactly. That goes to that phrase goes to one of our lectures actually, but I have stolen it now. So thank you for that it's one. Especially relevant now. Especially relevant. Between 1937, year after they went extinct, and 2008, there have been so many official government-funded searches and they found nothing. The genome was sequenced in 2009. Talks to make it de-extinct are kind of going nowhere, but it's still potentially there. How did they uh, sequence the genome? 
we have bodies in museums. We have oh, taxidermy. Taxidermy. Oh, fantastic. The same lecturer actually also has a taxidermy one that he rescued from a tip. Another story for another time. But why why is it in the headlines at the moment? Why has the Tasmanian tiger received such focus in February of 2021? <laughs> On the 22nd of February, Neil Waters, the president of the Thylacine Awareness Group of Australia, published a three-minute video entitled, We Found a Thylacine. And we went wild. We went a bit bonkers. <laughs> I mean, we weren't just jumping on it. We did watch it and we did we did review it as a highly scientific, yet excitable. Cautious optimism. A, cautious optimism. But I was excited. But what made this claim so different from every other claim that has happened in the last 84 years? Well... Neil Waters claimed he had camera trap footage and images of a thylacine mum, dad, and baby. Actual photos. Actual photos. It's what he said. I watched him give his statement about why he thought they were thylacines. He said there was a bit of a clue with the parents, although they were ambiguous. But, and I'm going to quote here what he said about the baby. Open quote. The baby has stripes. A stiff tail, the hock, which is kind of the lower connection between the tarsal bones and the leg, kind of the back of the foot region. The coarse hair, it's the right colour, it's a quadruped, stocky, and it's got the right shaped ears. This, for all intents and purposes, to Becca and my ears, sounded very much like a baby thylacine. But cautious optimism. Cautious optimism. What, what does this mean for science? Not only does it mean it's not just a population that's wandering around Tasmania, it's a breeding population. There is a baby there that's wandering around the brush, having evaded detection for so, so long. And the return of a species that was treated really, really poorly to the point of extinction. So the footage that evening was sent to the Hobart Museum of New Zealand. Science Twitter went mad. <laughs> now, Becca can probably back me up on this one, but Twitter is a place for scientists to openly discuss theories and work. I see it as the modern-day equivalent of an open forum at the Royal Institute or Linnaean <laughs> Society from the 1800s. There's a lot more trash, though, than there would have been. Uh, a lot more trash, a lot more trash talking. <laughs> it's, but it's a place that many good ideas were discussed as mothers have been insulted and theories heckled and ridiculed as well. And as you say, probably more trash. But, you know, researchers can talk on that. And, you know, I've met some wonderful people from all over the world, made some great communities. And so, of course, science Twitter went mad. The idea of the thylacine managing to survive. Managing to survive all this time. And the thylacine awareness group of Australia has previously been laughed at a little bit because of its really wild claims. And yet it looked like something dramatic was about to happen. And Becca and I eagerly awaited a result. Open shot, February the 23rd, morning. <laughs> the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, TMAG, in association with the Hobart Museum, and Nick Mooney, the honorary curator of vertebrate zoology at TMAG and an expert on the thylacine, gave their opinion. They are most likely a padamelon. That's not a thylacine. That's not a thylacine. In fact, shot. I looked at it and I didn't know what a Paddy Melon what I've was. I've never heard of one before. They so after a bit of, a bit, of, bit of research, a bit of digging, the Padamelon is part of the family of animals called the Macropodidae. You and I will know them better as kangaroos, wallabies, and the third Hemsworth brother of that group, <laughs> the Padamelons. What it turned out to be, this footage, is now 
accepted to be by the scientific community is a very small kangaroo-like animal. Yeah. Really flipping disappointing. And the chances that this species, the thylacine, would still exist was calculated at a in a paper at something like 1 in 1.6 trillion. I was a bit devastated because the further we get away from that 1936 cutoff, just the more and more unlikely it is yeah. that they're still out there. We can still search and we can still hope, but it's so very unlikely. We then went and saw some pictures, the actual pictures that were caught on the camera trap. And we wanted to see what Neil Waters was talking about. Becca, you saw them. What yeah. did you see? I saw um, Padamelon. <laughs> I really did. I, a young one. Yeah, I saw the... It was also walking away from the camera and it looks like it has stripes on its back, sure. To be fair, they weren't incredibly clear pictures anyway. They were really sketchy. Yeah. But it was dappled in sunlight from branches. It had... The, the, the fur had bunched up in a way when you kind of crouch over like you might see on a domestic cat. The fur kind of goes into stripes yeah. almost. Yeah, I did, um, a few years ago, I spoke to a scientist from Tasmania. Uh, he researches Tasmanian devils and I asked him what he thought about the thylacine. And he said they're probably, probably long gone. Um, and the fact that people are putting so much money into finding them when the money could be put into conserving animals that That's, we know are still there yeah. and endangered like the Tasmanian devil um, is a bit silly, really. And he said if they are still there, they're clearly very good at evading humans, and maybe that's a good thing. And maybe we should leave them to it. And I then got into a conversation with Becca that evening talking about what happens if they were there. Well, what's going to happen is tourists are going to turn up, trash the landscape, hotels are suddenly going to be built, ranger parks are going to be there, and no matter how much reserve of a reserve you make out of that area, very quickly the thylacine population there would probably be hunted or scared out of wherever it was. I really, really think after this, I don't think we're going to see these animals again, naturally, without cloning and de-extinction, of course, but we're not going to see these animals again. And that's, that's the news. I think we can learn something really important from this, though. Yeah? Once something goes extinct, that's it. It's not coming that's back. It. However cool do you think it is, however furry you think it is, however badly you treated it, you can't take that back. So the hundreds of species of animals going extinct every week stuff we can do stuff about now exactly we need to but the good news that we can take from this is the lesson once it's yes. gone it's gone and also now you know something about a truly fantastic species that was taken long before its time true it was a sober episode this one not probably not where you thought it's it would go <laughs> not going where you thought it would go but an important one nonetheless. It's Animal of the Episode. I'm liking the new energy after that. I've taken a minute. Yeah, taken a second. We're just regrouped. Yes. Animal of the Episode. Also, I have the results. Also, you have the results. So I'm. Oh, gosh. At okay. the moment, Becca, myself, she has won three. Right. We have drawn three. Right. And Tom, that's yeah. you. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Has one two. That's you. Has one two. I'm losing. Yes, I know. Last time we had the bonnet head shark versus the sleepy lizard in the love and monogamy episode. episode yes. Eight. Yes. I have the results here. Are you ready for them? I'm, I mean, I'm terrified, but shoot. Go so with it. I what think is it? This is a great one because we've had the most number of votes that we've had so far. 
So that's really cool. Yeah, that's always good across both Facebook and Twitter. And you can, of course, vote on either page Yes, as well. I also want to tell you that it wasn't a draw. I also want to tell you... <laughs> that the results were 45% to 55%. Oh my god, get to the point! No. <laughs> the winner was the Sleepy Lizard. Yes. Just, well done. Yes, I am. Well done. Oh. You won by a very... But two votes. Yeah, but I won. <laughs> Thank you everyone for voting. So, this week I would like to present to you the Desert Rat Kangaroo, the marsupial that actually did go extinct twice. Oh, good. For reals. It's also called the Ulakunta. Love that name. It's been described as a bulbous foot-long marsupial, <laughs> which bulbous. actually, like its name, Desert Rat Kangaroo, is kind of like a cross between a rat and a kangaroo. And it was discovered in the 1840s and then was drawn on canvas by John Gold. And the Desert Rat Kangaroo then promptly disappeared for almost 100 years. As you do. Yes, um, but then it was rediscovered deep in central Yay. Australian desert in the early 1930s. Funnily enough, just about the same time when the thylacine went extinct. So this animal was declared extinct again in 1994 and some people oh. again are holding out hope that it somehow escaped oblivion. Um, but it's far more likely that predation by red foxes eradicated them from the face of the earth. Which was an invasive species. But 1994 wasn't really that long ago, so maybe there is a chance. So that's the desert rat kangaroo. Watch this space. They've already gone extinct twice. Could it be? Hey, they're coming they back. Come back. Coming back for a third Again. and final extinction. <laughs> Hopefully not. If they Hopefully do not. Come back. If no, keeping them there. What have you got for me, Tom? I have got another extinct marsupial from Australia. Thylacolio carnifex. Ooh, what's that? That's very dramatic. It's known as the marsupial lion. Let me guess, it's not a lion. It's it's not a lion. It's a marsupial, big <laughs> beefy. These. It's it's a weird saber tooth squat thing, ah. but without the saber tooth. What do you mean by squat thing? <laughs> it's almost cross between a big cougar lion Ooh. and saber tooth cat without the fangs. Okay. Quite interesting. So it lived from 1.6 million years ago to 35,000 years ago. And yes, they went extinct because of humans and climate change. Mm. It was the it is the largest meat-eating mammal ever to have existed in Australia. It's the same order as kangaroos and koalas and wombats, which is unexpected. Forms. The uh, vombatiforms, which I love. The I wombats like belong to vombatiforms. So it's about 75 metres high, this marsupial lion, 150 centimetres from head to tail, 130 kilos in muscle weight, <laughs> huge, powerful forelimbs, semi-opposable thumbs to grab prey, four functional toes. It's quite interesting because the fifth one has been reduced to a rough pad like an opossum to climb ah, trees. So it was marsupial a... in the Americas. Yes, it was a grabbing, it was an animal capable of grabbing its prey and climbing trees, maybe to jump down on its prey. Its tail was there to support itself. It has huge jaw musculature for its size. Actually, the strongest bite force possibly for any known mammal ever. Um, a 101 kilogram individual of a marsupial lion had a bite force equivalent to that of a 250 kilogram African lion. Whoa. Over double its size. Ow. The teeth are incredible. Blade-like molars on the bottom jaw, canines all the way to the back of the top jaw, and the front fangs, both on the top and lower jaws, inward-pointing pair, almost vampiric in nature. <laughs> this unique arrangement, which allowed it to do something quite unique, not seen in any 
pre- large predatory mammal, cat, or dog seen today. Today, uh, a lion, for example, will grab its prey and it'll be dead within 15 minutes from blood loss. The incisors on the marsupial lion allowed the teeth to pierce the prey's spinal column, Ooh. tearing it out, blood vessels. Oh my gosh! It wasn't a sustained bite. It was a very quick and very, very violent death. So, yeah, lions would kill in 15 minutes. The marsupial lion kills in under one minute. Gosh. This is... This is a formidable hunter, hunting over three tons prey items. And yeah, it's currently related to the wombat. That's the <laughs> current... Wombats are so cute and fluffy. <laughs> they are amazing. They are, yeah, its, it's current relatives are three species of wombat and the koala bear. It, its hunt efficiency is also why it's now <laughs> it's extinct. too good at it hunting. too good at killing everything very, very quickly. So yeah, we have the desert rat kangaroo, the thing that's gone extinct twice, and the marsupial lion. Super killer. The super killer extraordinaire. So you can vote on Facebook or Twitter. Um, on Facebook, we're Darwin's Black Book. And on Twitter, we're at Darwin Black Book. No S on that one. But you can find us on Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast players. Thank you to the British Ecological Society, as always, for supporting the startup and development of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. For more information on the podcast, you can find us at bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And for more info about me, tomland.co.uk. And finally, to end the episode, here is a quote paraphrased from Into That Forest by Louis Naura. Quote, A wolf creature with yellow fur and black stripes. The tail were thick and the fur so fine it's like it didn't have fur at all. Indeed, it looked like those wolves I've seen in fairy tale books. It stared at us with huge black eyes. I'd go bail if it were not for the most bonny, handsomest thing if I'd ever seen. The thylacine. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye.